Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me today, and uh, thank you for uh, all the uh, nice presentations, actually. I never knew that uh, you guys spent a lot of years actually devoted for my country and uh, actually other countries as well that are suffering from uh, a refugee crisis. Um, uh, in fact, I would like to start with a tribute to uh, Jo Cox because uh, she founded the, uh, the uh, group of uh, Friends of Syria and she, uh, unfortunately, she was murdered a couple of weeks ago, but uh, her words will always remain with us and uh, I think that she put Britain first when she uh, uh, embraced the values of humanity and uh, equality among, among uh, people. And uh, I'm going to start actually outlining my uh, presentation with the intro introduction about why, what makes you in risk actually, and what is the nature of the program that I was hired or recruited through. Uh, I'm going to speak about some challenges that I faced personally, but also some general challenges that others may face. Uh, briefly, I'm going to describe scholars at risk and how they were effective in hiring me, how they were like... Uh, Excellent, actually, and uh, I'm gonna uh, tailor my story in a in a storyline uh, scheme, and then uh, I'm gonna hand over to uh, my colleague Omid, who is gonna speak about his uh, journey as well. So, uh, if I speak about risk, why are we in risk? Uh, normally, we are in risk because of war, because of our political new views, our ethnic background, and uh, defection from uh, military. So sometimes. If soldiers are ordered to kill people and they refuse to, then they are in a very high uh, risk. Uh, in fact, uh, the first one applies to me, the, th the, the second applies to me, the third one is partially applying to me, and then the fourth one was potentially applying, but then I was lucky not to go to the military. Uh, if we speak about the program that I was hired through, there were three uh, parameters that I was tested, uh, tested against. There was the academic parameters, my academic writing, my achievement, my uh, degrees, competencies, and uh, there was a humanitarian uh, parameters in which I had to write about my situation, my uh, risk assessment uh, uh, statement, and I had to provide some proofs. And they were the motives. Why am I applying for a PhD? What, what, what am I going to do with this uh, uh, degree? So I had uh, communicated with uh, scholars at risk. Uh, that was actually in November. So it wasn't a long time ago. And they were very effective. And I, uh, they were very rushing. They wanted to catch up before Christmas. So that, was, that worked out well for both of us. And uh, yeah, so uh, there, are, there were some challenges that go as a sequence, you know, you, you just like pass one challenge and then another challenge comes up and you just get used to it at the end. So uh, first of all, the visibility, which I experienced, uh, I never knew about scholars at risk and I will tell you later during my story how I came to know about scholars at risk. But in general, you don't know that there are people who are designated to help uh, citizens of uh, damaged countries and like countries who are like experiencing war. Uh, language profici uh, proficiency was not applied to me. I had, uh, I, ha I was actually like doing a lot of uh, language courses, and I spoke uh, like uh, above the average, I would say, English. Uh, my research interest uh, matching, and this is one of the problems that I faced. Actually, so you're not gonna like this. I faced it with with the Australian universities because I was trying to apply for Australian universities, and they were all the time asking me to find a professor. 
And you know, nowadays, you have all the nature of this uh, interdisciplinary uh, uh, research uh, projects where, where you actually have two sciences together. You have social science and you have business, or you have like uh, psychology with like uh, in, uh, behavioral science, or you have, so all the time have, so you have to look for a, for a, a professor and you have to make sure that he's interested in both disciplines or actually three disciplines sometimes. So I was actually like uh, struggling with this. And I had some people who, ha who are, because my area was actually finance and data mining. So I had people who are interested in data mining, but they said we want to apply it into medical databases. So we are not interested in into financial. And then I had people who are in finance, but they wanted to uh, research on interest rates, on credit default swaps and stuff, something like this. So it was very challenging. It was overwhelming as well. Um, uh, regarding track as well, so we have so this problem happened to me uh, with the with the agencies that help uh, students. So scholars at risk. We had a Syrian consortium as well. Uh, they were actually uh, CARA and there's Amnesty International. Most of these agencies they don't have defined tracks in which you know which which uh, which case applies to you. So for example, scholars at risk was mainly uh, targeting people who work in academic in academia and they have lost their jobs because of war. So they, were, they would be looking for a job for you. They would be looking for a temporary or permanent uh, contract for you. But for me, as a, uh, I, was a, I was a master's student. I wasn't finished yet with my master. I wasn't done with my master. And I was still uh, I was, uh, corres corresponding with them. And they said, well, we don't help, but we can try. But you know, it was a little bit not, uh, uh, it was a little bit ambiguous. I didn't believe at the beginning that they could help me because uh, they said they helped a little bit uh, undergrads and then they helped people who lost their jobs. Um, regarding transcripts, this, is, this uh, faced me in 2013, this problem when I applied for my master's. So my university in uh, Qatar, uh, sorry. So my university in Qatar actually uh, requested that they check my uh, transcript sent directly from my university in Syria, which was uh, un impossible because my, there were no connection with any, any uh, institution in Syria, government institution. It was very difficult. Everything was uh, in a mess. So I couldn't provide them with this. They said, OK, fine, we give you a condition. But I had, I had a, an attested copy of my uh, graduation statement and my uh, transcript. So I had given them this. And they said, we conditionally will ac accept that provided that you're not going to graduate until you provide us with the uh, original one. Now, luckily, I graduated. And uh, I was the distinctive student, so they didn't bother at the end asking me about that because I had done the GMAT, I had done the TOEFL, the IELTS, all the requirements for, uh, for this degree. And then I had, got, I had actually achieved a very high uh, uh, score. So uh, in terms of visas and immigration, that's also like another ch challenge that Sometimes you get acceptance from the from the uh, university, but then you don't get acceptance from the embassy that gives you a student visa because they believe you you have motives, other motives than going to um, that going to study. Um, this was well, I was lucky also to get the UK visa. Everyone told me back home that Syrians uh, will never get the visa to enter uh, UK. Um, so this is about scholars at risk, as I said. They operate, uh, they actually communicate with 400 uh, universities. 
around the world in 39 countries, and they help. They have helped more than 120 cases, actually. And this is the statistics. They have actually classified some statistics in where they uh, they actually count the people under uh, that uh, were exposed to violence, people who were imprisoned, prosecuted, or they lost their positions. And some of these cases actually they are combined. So two cases may apply to one person. So this is why the number is a little bit high. But uh, um, it gives you an indication what is the most um, case, which is uh, violence and disappearance. People get kidnapped and stuff like that. Uh, their main role would be like protection. So they try to provide protection to you. So they actually find you a job in a safe place. Or they advocate so they, they can actually, if somebody is in prison, they can write, help him write in a uh, help her or help him writing an appeal letter. And they actually uh, also contribute to learning. So if you are missing some of the qualifications, they, they do seminars and workshops and invite the people under risk to go and attend these. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm Syrian. I, uh, uh, I actually done my undergrad in, uh, in Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. Uh, university in economics and then I uh, moved on with my master's uh, MBA and I did the concentration in business analytics in which I was uh, I became fanatic about uh, business analytics and databases recently and uh, in 2016 in January 2016 I got my graduated my graduation statement so I was looking for a PhD program and I, at the moment I'm in uh, University of Portsmouth doing my uh, PhD in operations and system management so I wanted, this is my storyline, and I, before I wanted to start my storyline, I actually wanted to go to uh, Leina, I'm sorry, I don't know, uh, Le uh, Le Leoni, yeah. okay, so I wanted to go back, uh, refer to Leoni's question about the crisis. So what is the crisis? Is it the migration crisis? Is it giving visas to Syrians who are coming here to do problems? Is it, where does this crisis start? And in my opinion, the crisis starts with the war, and the war started because of the Syrian government. So, in my opinion, we should not be sidetracked and forgetting that the source of this problem was the Syrian government. There was an uprising in 2011, beginning of 2011. There were no arms, there were nothing. They were just like asking for basic rights, and the government started to kill people and kill kids. So, uh, um, I would briefly go into the history and give you like uh, like a trailer of a movie, but you can always refer to the book of uh, Patrick Seal, he uh, talking about the struggle of the Middle East. There was a book uh, that uh, actually spoke in detail about the history of, of politics in Syria. So in, in 1967, that was my dad. He was a soldier in the uh, Syrian army. The head of the soldier was uh, the father of the current president, Hafez al-Assad. They were from this small uh, city, and uh, this city was very poor. They had a lot of grudge on people from the big cities because they had very bad uh, counsel. I mean, they didn't get the necessities that day, that time, and they were uneducated. So they mo most of them moved to the army, took high positions in the army, and uh, started to uh, may, uh, take control of the army. In 1967, uh, my father was in this area in the Jolan Heights, and this area was very important because it overlooks four countries, and it's very high, it's very... Uh, strategic and uh, he got the order they all got the order to flee this place in after midnight so they had to like go rush and flee the place because they thought there was a 
there was uh, they reckoned that the uh, uh, Israeli army was attacking and they were like surrounding the mountain which turned out not true so they left the place and the place was taken over by Israel now the story keeps going that uh, in three years time uh, Hafez al-Assad he went to a, one meeting which was full of ambassadors and he went with all the tanks and he uh, he arrested everyone and he became president so this is the way the father of the current uh, president became pres uh, became a president that time in 1970 uh, my father actually started he because he knew the facts and he was there he started to recognize how much uh, racism was happening based on your uh, location geographic location where you belong to and in 19 and uh, 1978 my parents uh, migrated to Qatar and I was born in Qatar in 1983 unfortunately the immigration law in Qatar does not give citizenship neither citizenship nor uh, permanent residence residency for uh, people who were born in, in Qatar which is also like another thing that I always think about that really religion and uh, ethnic background and culture does not really make you judge people so I'm here now at the moment, I'm from different faith, I'm from different color, but I'm settled in the UK and I'm getting treated very well. So that makes you re remove all the borders and think everyone is equal, really. And it doesn't matter what you believe in, what it, it matters how you respect the other person. So uh, in 1983, as I said, I was born and in 2001, I was the only child among my brothers and brother and sisters to decide to go back to my country. My father said, don't go there, it's a corrupted country. I said, it's my hometown, I want to go and find out what's going on there. So I, in 2001, I joined the uh, Damascus University. It turned out that the, the, the people are very nice, very helpful. Um, I thought my father was exaggeration, exaggerating because he didn't want to come and see the, anyone. He didn't even want to see his family because he said it was a very bad country, uh, managed very badly. But I thought it's, it, was, it was reasonable. It was a little bit corruptive because the government was very corruptive. And then you, it had its own system. So, the, for example, Syrians are not, uh, they are not supposed to have a lot of connections, a lot of network become very active because then they became suspicious for the government. And the government is very insecure. So if you are very active and you have a lot of friends, that means maybe you can do kind of like party or maybe you can spread some thoughts so, so they were so they were all the time like suspicious so you had to be all the time uh, manipulative you have to be all the time scared from the government because they try to scare you all the time so this is why now when you make an interview with a with a Syrian student I I assume that the Syrian student will always be protected like he wouldn't be open at the beginning he will be all the time. when the Syrians go to uh, go to the home office for example I, I would assume they will not be willing to release all the information because they think that the government here is the same that the government that you got used to back home. The government that can kill, that can do anything without any uh, 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 any responsibility. So in 2011, I, I decided to leave uh, Syria when the uprising has started and I knew that there was no hope in this country. Uh, I had gained some, uh, some experience in finance and uh, banking, but again, based on my faith and my religion, I was never going to promote it, so I know that. So I went back to where my parents are living, and I started to work, but I always wanted to do my master's, so I saved money, and in 2013, I got accepted in, in uh, the University of uh, Qatar University in the College of Business, 
and I started the program. Uh, my father, meanwhile, had appeared in many uh, uh, many uh, newspapers in the demonstration. That was in 2011. But in 2013, the government attacked our house, and they uh, they actually uh, confiscated everything in the house, and then they occupied the house and used the roof to monitor the whole area. So my, our house became like a military base. Um, uh, we thought that that was random, that was done random, not because my dad appeared here. But then, in one of the interviews, my father said that the number of the, the uh, killed people is very high. It's not, what the, it's not what the media is saying, it's even 10 times larger. And they asked him in the interview, how do you know? And he said, I have contact with my family back home. So it turns out a big mistake, because they attacked my family back home in, in Syria. My, my grandmother's house, and they uh, actually looked looked for my father. They were thinking that me or my father or anyone of my family is there, and they actually took um, arrested my his sister, which is my auntie, and her son. And he, uh, this is my cousin who was killed uh, one year later. So he was tortured for one year and killed. And that was like a retaliation for my father's statement that he said I got the information from my uh, relatives back home that the number of killed people is, mu is much higher. In 2016, I was uh, I got a letter from uh, the University of Qatar, which had helped me actually gave me an assistantship to work on campus and to study, to afford uh, to uh, to be able to afford my uh, tuition fees. So I got a letter that time because I had the impression that after uh, graduating I will be hired there as a teaching assistant because I was doing very well and I had so many uh, nice proposals that uh, we submitted, me and my supervisor, to the uh, uh, Grant Council. But it turned out that uh, Qatar's economy is heavily uh, uh, depending on oil and petrol prices, and that, that uh, like six months ago, petrol prices were really falling down, so they stopped all the hiring. So I, so they sent me a letter that as soon as you graduate, you have to leave the country. We, uh, we're not, we're not going to hire you, and you're no longer a student. So that time I started to stress and I started to think I should have looked for alternatives. I should have taken, I shouldn't have taken this as uh, for granted. So I started to look for uh, uh, PhD programs and to be honest, I never looked at any university in England. I looked at the universities in uh, the States and in Australia. And uh, I looked for, uh, actually I applied for more than 25 universities. Uh, I was one of your case studies, I had the same uh, outcome, none, none had accepted me in Australia, because they had actually a lot of requirements, different than any other uh, uh, system. So they were asking about so many papers, and I had to write all the time and send them the, the papers. Whereas uh, also the, in the American uh, system, their deadline is all the time very long before the, uh, the program starts, and their program starts in August, which does not work well for me because I had to leave in January or in two months, which is in March, last March. So I was thinking, where am I going to go in these six months? I'm, I'm, I can never go and, and gamble and go to, back to Syria because I can, I can risk my life there. So it turned out that I attended one of the... I was very desperate. I attended one of the, uh, one of the lectures on how to get your uh, proposal grant, uh, granted. And uh, the, the presenter that time, his name is Daniel Varisco. He came to me and he said, like, uh, what nationality are you? I said, I'm Syrian. I said, he said, are you Syrian? Really? I said, yeah, I have a Syrian citizenship. He said, why don't you go through scholars at risk or amnesty or 
Kara or any of these. I said, I never heard of them. And he said, you should try, give it a try and uh, contact them. So I contacted scholars at risk and they came back to me on the same day asking uh, where I am and am I safe, am I not safe, or what is my qualification. And I started to, to, to fulfill their requirement. They connected me with uh, these guys and I, I'm really grateful to uh, Professor Andy and uh, Professor Panos because they actually worked uh, uh, so close to me and I got interviewed in 10 days uh, and then uh, I was issued the uh, visa in uh, February. So that worked well. I came here on 6th of March. I never planned to be in, uh, in England, but it happened. So maybe I was meant to be in England. Uh, it's a bit cold, but... <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my story. If you have any questions, uh, I hope it was not long. Uh, um, is gonna play. Well, first of all, thank you everybody for such amazing uh, researches and presentations, and thank you, SRHE, for this amazing event. Uh, I would like to start uh, with my story, uh, which at some points actually refers to uh, what we previously heard here. And uh, in the second part of my talk, I will uh, reflect on some uh, uh, issues of effectiveness and also the issues of necessity of supporting programs, uh, such as one I'm benefiting from. Uh, I was born in 1982, uh, two years after uh, the project of Islamization of the universities known as Cultural Revolution started in Iran. Uh, it was one of the most extensive uh, projects in the world uh, to censor uh, the independent voices in the higher education system. Uh, the Iranian government shut down all the universities for three years and expelled uh, thousands of uh, faculty members and students uh, mostly almost all of the uh, students and faculty member uh, that who had uh, affiliation to uh, leftist organizations were uh, expelled my parents were among them and uh, they were both socialists and sympathetic to uh, the organization of revolutionary workers in Iran uh, it took uh, took them 10 years to get their jobs back and this time only as school teachers. So from the very beginning, uh, my life was affected by censorship, either as a result of my uh, parents' expulsion and economic hardship that we faced for years, or as a result of um, having to lead a double life that so many Iranian kids actually experienced de during the 80s. Uh, we felt like living in parallel universes of uh, indoor and outdoor lifestyle. Uh, I, I remember uh, I, uh, there was parties at, in our house and I could see my mother uh, dancing and drinking alcohol, listening to Rolling Stones and making jokes about the Supreme Leader. And then every single day, uh, every single night, I'm, I was told not to tell anybody about whatever 
I saw in my house and uh, about music, about the parties, especially about the jokes. And every single day, I was told in school, uh, I was given a list of great deadly sins of uh, what, which was somehow whatever my parents and their friends were doing uh, the night before. So my my whole life was affected inseparably uh, by uh, self censorship. I was fascinated by literature. And I started publishing poetry and uh, writing uh, literary articles since I was in high school. And then I started uh, my bachelor in English uh, literature. And it, it was then when I uh, was arrested for the first time for organizing a demonstration in the anniversary of uh, the assassination of writers, uh, intellectuals and academics in Iran, known as uh, chain murders in Iran. Uh, Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. Okay, I guess it's all right. I'm just getting the same. No, it's fine. At the back, it's a little bit hard to see the, yep. the slides and so. Yep. We just get that. Yeah, yeah we're good. Like Perfect. Thank you. Uh, in uh, 1983, 33 members of Iranian uh, Writers Association uh, in exile were assassinated around the world. Between uh, 1988 and 1999, a series of murder and disappearances of Iranian writers, academics, intellectuals happened. But in 1994 till 1998, at least 10 writers and activists were brutally murdered. And this one was the only one that uh, Intelligence Ministry in 1998 officially admitted uh, the involvement of its operatives in the secret project of elimination of the intellectuals and writers and academics in Iran. Uh, the, uh, the deputy... Uh, uh, chief of the intelligence ministry of Iran, Saeed Imami, was arrested as a mastermind of this project and he committed suicide in a prison and the whole case was closed. So, and uh, when I was arrested, uh, I was forced to confess to um, a variety of false accusations, um, including uh, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, an incest, uh, things I've never done, and each one of them is punishable by death in Iran. And and uh, I had to confess all of those in front of a camera, and that that footage was uh, my nightmare for years, and is still in possession of the uh, intelligence ministry of Iran. Uh, so uh, during my student time, I started translating uh, and introducing literary works which could. Uh, somehow um, um, inspire a sense of sociopolitical awareness and uh, rebellion in uh, young writers and readers, um, along with some of my friends in this uh, in the university. Uh, we we started translating rebellious writers like George Bataille, Allen Ginsberg, and and it's obvious that this sort of uh, literature could not um, pass uh, censorship in Iran. So we started uh, to establish. Uh, um, some mechanisms, some uh, ways to, to actually publish them uh, and pass censorship. Uh, we started some websites uh, and put them online for free or we, we printed them, published them through the underground uh, websites. As you can see, underground books uh, are usually printed and uh, distributed uh, or sold uh, in uh, universities of Iran or in bookstores like um, uh, in, in a black market kind of. Uh, things and uh, we also have um, we are, uh, the Iranians actually are one of the uh, um, 
uh, unique users of uh, in internet uh, for uh, actually resisting censorship. We we have more than thousand uh, uh, online libraries uh, that publishing Iranian underground books or the the, ba the banned books that uh, uh, has been banned for years in Iran. They, uh, there is a, a a huge project and uh, it's all based on the donations of anonymous people in Iran. So, and uh, also uh, hundreds of online magazines uh, that um, publish almost all the articles which is rejected by the main media. Uh, after 2009 Green Movement, the Supreme Leader of Iran uh, blamed actually the whole turmoil on the students influenced by the uh, Marxist and socialist uh, uh, contents uh, of humanities uh, and he called for the uh, reviewing and downsizing the humanities courses uh, in the university. Following his command, as you see, he, this is uh, quoting what he said, humanities must be reviewed and cleansed of the Western ideas. So after uh, following his command, in 2010 the expansion of 12 disciplines in social sciences were put on hold. In 2011, undergraduate degrees in journalism, communication, and philosophy were removed from uh, one of the most established universities in Iran, uh, University of Allama Taba Tabai. Uh, in response to this uh, censor, uh, cens new methods of censorship in the academy, uh, we started some websites uh, translating uh, articles and books uh, in humanities and put them for free. And uh, another most effective uh, way of resisting against this uh, kind of censorship was uh, establishing an institution called Parallel Academy. Parallel Academy was formed by the students of the University of Tehran uh, Department of Humanities and uh, its goal was to actually resist against the filtration of humanities in Iran. Uh, the uh, Par Parallel Academy started holding classes in uh, uh, under the cover of the group studies in the uh, universities and followed uh, was followed by several uh, universities across the country and they started to to actually teach all those um, contents that were removed from the humanities curricula mostly the marxist and socialist contents uh, as you see the, the manifesto parallel academy states the iranian academy is now alienated from the life board surrounding it the knowledge produced in established academies, especially in humanities, is so inactive and ineffective that it stinks of death and boredom. Iranian academy is now nothing but a pointless bureaucratic office totally disconnected from free processes of producing and distributing knowledge. Uh, also, we, we started, uh, uh, with some of my friends, I founded a group of theater uh, political activists. Uh, that uh, applied and adopted a new techniques of uh, street theater called as guerrilla theater, which is a kind of street theater that adopts the guerrilla warfare tactics uh, in order to uh, address the sociopolitical issues in the public places. The guerrilla theater um, uses the element of surprise, hit and run tactics, and small and fast moving groups and tries to, to uh, address the political problem in public places and disappear before the police can crush them. Uh, Parallel Academy was shut down after a year. Uh, I was arrested in Isfahan 
and uh, the whole uh, Guerrilla Theater uh, band was disbanded. Uh, I was released to do, uh, due to my heart problem and under condition of leaving the country as soon as possible. So I uh, left the country to Italy where I studied Master in American Studies. Uh, after the new government took the office and called for the opposition to come back to Iran and the, uh, the promise that there would be no persecution, I returned to Iran 10 days after President Rouhani took the office. And I was so optimistic about coming political openness and lifting the uh, state of emergency that actually crushed everything which was left of the freedom of expression in Iran. I joined my old friends and started working. Uh, I held the first uh, workshop on guerrilla theater in Tehran and right after that uh, the persecution and threats started again and this time it was targeting my family. So I left the uh, country once again uh, to Denmark with the help of ICON, uh, which is an international cities of refuge network uh, which offers temporary shelter to writers and artists at risk. Uh, ICON actually originates in the uh, parliament, uh, the, the International Parliament of Writers, IPW, uh, which was uh, founded in 1993 uh, with prisoners like Salman Rushdie and uh, Vaslav Howell and uh, council members like Jack Derrida, Harold Pinter. Uh, the, the organization uh, was expanded in 2005, but the, the scheme for uh, the suggested shelter for the uh, writers at risk uh, remained intact. And then as an alternative, Alcorn uh, Administration Center was established in 2006 in Stavanger, Norway. But the problem with the Alcorn pro uh, program was that it only offers temporary program, like two years term, and at the end of my two years in Denmark uh, coincided with the uh, refugee crisis and also with the uh, dramatic change in the Danish government's regulations on the asylum seekers. I sought asylum in Denmark, but uh, and this uh, I, I think somehow uh, uh, refers to what uh, Leonida uh, was, was telling. They, they 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 told me that okay, are you Iranian? I said yes. So oh, you should have come five years ago. So the, the crisis, I think it, there is another way of looking at the crisis, which is that that this the crisis actually moves and changes. Uh, in line with the with the change of the attention, the media attention actually, uh, in 2009 until 2011, every single Iranian uh, who who saw the Selim in every country in the war almost uh, got yes in in like a couple of months. Actually, uh, I remember in 2009 all of the em embassies in Tehran opened their doors to the uh, demonstrators. And they, they, they just uh, got in, and they, they, the whole process of seeking asylum started there. Anyway, they, they told me that, okay, we have, uh, this is exactly, and I'm quoting, we have Syrians in our hand, and so you have to wait, and it might take years, uh, and there is no guarantee that you will be granted asylum. I was in this kind of desperate uh, situation when completely by chance, the head of ICORN was informed through the Amnesty International about the possibility of a PhD position uh, in the University of Portsmouth. And they actually uh, offered uh, 
this uh, opportunity to me through the ICOR. So I uh, immediately applied for for the program and I was interviewed by uh, Dr. Capotas and his colleagues and fortunately very quickly I could uh, uh, start uh, studying here. Otherwise my whole future was, uh, would have drowned in insecurity and uh, desperation and it's, this is exactly what Rebecca was t saying that uh, I, I could have uh, wasted, wasted three years, four years of my life in camps in Denmark and the, the, the situation which was changing was uh, unbelievable. Uh, when I uh, started my program in Denmark, uh, I had a press conference. I was on the front page of every single uh, newspaper and magazine in Denmark. They gave me a place to live, they gave me a decent salary, and then suddenly everything was just vanished. I have to go to a camp, I couldn't work, I couldn't ride there. The situation yeah, is, is if you, if you been there, you know the situation is is impossible for for a writer, for an academician, for a researcher to work there. So everything would be just finished there. Uh, no, I, I would like to uh, I would like to say that that this this whole story actually shaped uh, the topic I chose for my PhD program which was, of course, the only thing that affected my entire life, censorship. Uh, I uh, chose the uh, censorship, uh, but, uh, but the, most of the research is on the, uh, on the topic of censorship is focused on the direct mechanisms of censorship. And uh, Right now, in, in most of the authoritarian countries and in some levels in the democratic societies, uh, there are... Um, applying and adopting new mechanisms of censorship, which is more sophisticated, untraceable, and from some perspective, actually difficult to be labeled as censorship. Uh, this is what we call indirect mechanisms of censorship. This is a very, very new concept. Uh, the first essay, actually, which was written on uh, this issue uh, was uh, on, in 2005 by the uh, Open Society initiative, just, justice initiative, and this is a very, very uh, new uh, conception uh, in the field of uh, researching on censorship. My research is uh, aimed to establish an account of definition, utilization, and uh, legal aspects of the indirect mechanisms of censorship, mostly uh, in the uh, field of book publishing, uh, industry, but in a broader way, also the media and cultural studies, cultural industries. I, I would like now to, uh, but before I uh, finish this part, uh, there are some parts of the uh, world, mostly the authoritarian societies, that uh, adopt violent ways of both direct and indirect mechanism, but these uh, four means of uh, indirect censorship are also used in the democratic societies in countries uh, also in Europe. Uh, the arbitrary allocation of public resources including official publicity, frequency and subsidies is one of the most uh, important ways of uh, censoring media and uh, 
press outlets in order to to uh, to, to put pressure on the uh, the most vital uh, part of the media uh, corporation uh, by uh, actually uh, cutting the the advertisement which is the most important part of the financial resources of the media or by giving this uh, kind of ad public advertisement uh, to the uh, pro-governments uh, media. Uh, the arbitrary use of state mechanism of regulation and enforcement mostly works through the licensing and registration and it, it uh, somehow pushes uh, the uh, independent media away from the uh, the uh, competition uh, with the uh, mainstream media or pro-government media. The using uh, the groups of internet users and software to impose user-generated censorship. Uh, the, the best example of it is the 50 Cent uh, Army of China that is a group, organized group of uh, internet users who downvote all the critical uh, articles that somehow uh, targets the uh, government's, Chinese government's policy. And also the using copyright law as means of censorship is also being used here in the democracy societies as well. And I would like to finish my talk by addressing few issues on uh, such supporting programs uh, like uh, Scholars at Risk, CARA and uh, the one I'm benefiting from. The most important part of it is, the, uh, is to reach the scholars in danger zones. Uh, in, in my case, in Ahmad's, uh, you can see that we both uh, came here from a third country. And reaching to the academics, to the students who uh, really need such opportunities inside the danger zones, in, in Iran, in Syria, in uh, countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, is almost, mm, if not impossible, but very, very difficult for so many reasons. Uh, and another thing about it is that, that most of these uh, academics, students inside these countries, they don't know anything about uh, the existence of such programs at all. Uh, for example, I found out about this program completely by chance. The, the, the way and the mechanisms of informing and reaching out to the uh, academics is, is different and, uh, and for in, from any perspective if you look at it you see that it is insufficient uh, comparing to the uh, uh, to the number of the academics who need such programs. The issue of involvement is also important because, for, uh, let me give you an example uh, there is a, a researcher, scholar, uh, who is now in prison in Iran, Omid Kokabi. He was uh, this PhD student in physics. He came back to Iran to uh, visit his family. He was arrested. He was offered by the Iranian government to, to work for the nuclear uh, department of uh, Iranian government. He rejected. He's still in prison, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. There are so many uh, academics uh, who really need to to, uh, to find a way to uh, leave the country for the further education, but the government is monitoring them, surveilling them, 
so they, they are actually um, kind of afraid of actually uh, apply for such programs. And another thing about it is to is, uh, is the issue of priority. Uh, you might have two uh, applicants. One is in a grave danger, immediately needs help, needs to, to, to uh, find a way into academy. And another one is mm, academically eligible. Uh, in terms of the qualification, they cannot be compared. So this could be also addressed. Uh, and the question remains that how these programs can actually address such uh, issues. And I will finish my... How, how many time do I have? I guess I'm already... <laughs> two minutes, all right. Uh, and the, mm, the role of the intermediary institution, uh, let me give you some examples of it. Uh, well, the Amnesty International is an excellent example, but another one is uh, the BIHE, or Baha'i Institute uh, for Higher Education. In 1979, in Iran, uh, the, follow the followers of Baha'i faith uh, were, uh, were banned from attending university. Uh, according to the uh, report of the International Baha'i Community, uh, since uh, until 2006, no uh, follower of Baha'i faith attended university in Iran. In 2008, when they, when they actually removed uh, part in the national exam form, which, uh, which asking, asked the applicant to express, uh, to, to state his religion, uh, 800 uh, Baha'i uh, succeeded to apply for the uh, program. And 480 students passed the first application process. 289 were accepted to universities. Since then, over half of the accepted students have been expelled uh, after it was revealed that they were Baha'is. And Baha'i Institute for Higher Education was founded in 1987 in response to the discriminatory policies against the uh, Baha'i citizen. BIHE is now offering 37 uh, programs, uh, university programs across the five faculties from humanities to engineering. And uh, they uh, recently succeeded to to send gra uh, graduates uh, admitted in uh, 69 universities across the world. Also, 20, including 21 universities in the UK, admitted the uh, graduates of the BIHE. So, uh, however, BIHE can enormously uh, benefit from uh, direct communication with the universities, with the programs that are actually uh, supporting refugees or supporting academics at risk. And I believe that uh, the program, uh, like uh, what was offered to me by the University of Portsmouth, CARA, and scholars at risk, can hugely benefit uh, from communicating directly to the, these intermediary uh, institutions that know people, know the economies in need in the uh, danger zones. And the last one, I'll uh, be quick. Uh, is actually the most important part of the, these issues. And it's that, uh, okay, when you started your program here, the first thing that you're thinking about until the end is that, what should I do after it's finished? 
what should I do after I graduated? I lived in Italy, I moved to Denmark, I'm here in UK, I still don't know if I can stay here after four years. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I have to, to plan for, for uh, after uh, my graduation from right now. So it is very important to, to both um, psychologically, emotionally, and actually support and help these uh, refugee students, academics, who are actually uh, benefiting from these programs. But at the same time, they are always stressed about uh, what will happen for them afterwards. And thank you, thank you very much uh, for your patience.